0: And welcome to the 94th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview the game developers and ask them about their start making games, what their influences are, and who inspires them. Although, in this case, we're actually asking an author about his book. This show is split into two halves. The show initially focuses on the developer, or should I say author, themselves. In the second half, we'll discuss the game-stroke book they're here to promote, which in this case is
1: Electronic Dreams by Tom Lean. Tom, who are you and what do you do? Hello, Chris. My name's Tom Lean, and I'm a historian of technology, fundamentally. Um, I first got interested in the history of computing years ago now, when, back when I was a student. Um, I never really knew what to do at university. So I did a joint honours degree, half a history degree, half a computing degree. The easier half of a computing degree, I should probably point out. Right, okay. And I, you sort of think to yourself, well, what do I do with a joint honours degree in computing and history? And I sort of fell into history of computing. So I did a master's degree looking at the home computer in 1980s Britain. I've um, enjoyed that, went away, wondered what will I do now, university's over. I went back and did a PhD on roughly the same subject. Um, a few years ago, um, so I do in fact have a doctorate in playing 1980s video games. Fundamentally, That's amazing. Um, well, how has, is, what
0: was the premise of the um, the uh, hypothesis on that and that thesis? What, what, what were you looking at there?
1: The PhD, I mm. guess, I was sort of looking at the 1980s home computer boom in Britain. Um, through the point of view of a number of different history of technology, methodological approaches. So looking particularly at how societies sort of shape technologies, um, we always sort of talk about technology and computers having an impact on society. Well, there's a lot of ideas in history of science, history of technology, that try and look at the reciprocal relationship. What is the relationship between a society and technology going the other way? How does a society affect a technology? Um, You can see that really quite clearly in the case of 1980s home computing, you know, is sort of the device that is going to save Britain from industrial strife. If if you happen to be a Tory minister at the time, Um, I was also looking particularly at users. I mean, people sort of think about history of technology as being all about inventors inventing things. Really, it's moved on a long way from that. It's sort of theoretical approaches looking at the role of users in creating technologies. Um, Interestingly enough, I mean, you sort of talk to a lot of the people who designed 1980s home computers. They didn't necessarily know what the machines were going to be used for a lot of the time. I mean, they sort of had a vague idea. You know, maybe it'll be used for computer chess or running a power station or something. But in terms of actual practical experience, you know, the home computer is basically just this thing that's searching for a purpose at the start of the 1980s. Um, and users, I think, play a huge role in actually giving it a purpose, figuring out what part it does play in life.
0: I do remember seeing that in the, uh, the section in the book of, of Electric Dreams, which is subtitled How 1980s Britain Learned to Love the Computer. Uh, and it's a fantastic book uh, covered, sort of like a pixelated sort of, um typeface fantastic stuff but um one of the things that struck me is one of the, you're right they didn't the, the creators of these machines were creating them for creating sake um so sweeping statement there but ultimately that's what they were cuz they didn't really know why they were making them they're just like they were interesting they could they made them because they could maybe and mm. i remember a quote from uh, to paraphrase and it's related it was in the early 2000s when broadband was starting to arrive in the UK, and someone from BT said, quote, unquote, you know, only weird people want broadband. <laughs> 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 it's like, no one, you know, um, most people don't need it. Only weird people do. Quote, that was that was exactly what he said. He was like, <laughs> what? And uh, and I thought back, and I was quite, I was reading from him, because I was one of the earliest adopters of broadband when we were playing you know because I was desperately to get to a reasonable speed and there's, there's a mirror to that like was, we're making this but we don't know why we're making mm. this thing we've made this technology which is you know it was a, that there was the next step wasn't it which is that beyond the realms of your book but the 2000s mm-hmm. that was another you know push for you know people don't realize that 15 years ago that the technology we have now just didn't exist you know, if you went back in time with your with my smartphone Ten years ago, I'll be burnt as a witch. It's it's fine. I'll I'll be yeah, Yeah, fair fair cop. I'm a witch. Um, So it's it's and that kind of thinking. This is like no one has any use for this. Why are you making these? And it's thankfully there are visionaries out there that actually no, this is important. Mm. So, but I think gonna... technology
1: finds its own sort of place in people's lives. Really, sometimes, I mean...
0: yeah, sometimes it doesn't. Well, it's really <laughs> interesting. It's like, yeah, no one really needs this. No, really, yeah, no one. Okay, fine. So, so um, how did you make your start? Sort of, we well, got. I think you spoke about how you made your start writing and things like this. I mean, is, your, is this your first
1: piece, or is it, I don't... Um, this is my first book? So, right. I guess I, you know i did the standard phd thing i did the phd i wrote the thesis i produced i guess a few y sort of articles out of it and then kind of sat there as this sort of idea would well, be nice to write a book on this someday um you know there are sort of questions i haven't answered in my own mind yet i'd like to do more research on. um so it was sort of a, an excuse almost to actually go back but rather than writing i guess a fairly boring academic book that most people do after their PhDs. The subject of 1980s computing is just so much fun. Mm. You know? I mean, it seemed the sort of thing that almost deserved a popular treatment, rather than me sort of going on about history of technology, methodological approaches, and how they apply to the subject. And it's
0: definitely um, unique to Britain as well, isn't it? Aspects of it are. I don't want to be the mm. flag-waving lunatic, but I'm not that at all. Trust me, I'm not. But there were, there's definitely aspects of uniquely Britishness of how, for a period, a very small, short period of time, Mm -hmm. things were a bit crazy, as regards to computers in in the UK. And it's quite a uniquely British thing, isn't it?
1: Very much so. I mean, if you look at the equivalent stories from other countries in the world, they are quite different. You You sort of think about America, you know, in this period. The people who sort of bring home computing to, you know, the American public they're all sort of hippies. You know, they're hackers. They are people who enjoy messing around with technology. If you look at the sort of 1980s when the computer enters the home in Britain, it's virtually state-sanctioned, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the sort of figurehead, I guess, of the home computer boom in Britain is Sir Clive Sinclair, who I guess is most people's typical idea of, you know, an inventor rather than your typical hippie. I mean, I think there's something sort of quite comforting about that. You know, it's almost sort of harking back to this sort of glorious tradition of the British boffin to some extent, you know. yeah.
0: Yeah. He now wasn't think, even an academic at all, was he? People think that. Like, no, no, he never went to university at all, did he? He just
1: did. He was a journalist or something, wasn't he? Or a, I believe he started out as an electronics journalist. Like, right, I would have yeah. to actually double check that off the mm. top of my head, but I think that's where he got his start, and then essentially became an electronics entrepreneur. Um, you know, it introduced some sort of fascinating early products. Mm. I mean, Pocket Calculator, for instance, I yeah. think was probably Sinclair's first big hit. Um, yeah. You know, before Sinclair, the things cost a few hundred quid and were the size of a brick to live on your desktop. I mean, yep. Yep. after Sinclair, it's about 70 quid and you can stick it in your pocket. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. That that aspect of, of the technology where they developed. Oh, yeah, you can turn the power on and off rapidly. Really? <laughs> why would you do that? Well, why not? OK, what happens? Nothing.
1: Yay! I, mean, I love that sort of approach, though. You know, it's sort of looking at what components do and yeah. then finding out something else they do. You know, sort yeah. of stretching the components on an extra step to do something that the designers didn't expect yeah. in order to then do something else with them. Yeah, it's a really interesting sort of approach to innovation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's very much driven by cost, but, but even so, it's a very interesting thing to see in practice. Mm.
0: So... As, as a writer and a, a researcher, what do you think is drives you? Why why did you what what what's the one thing that you you lock onto and go yep, this is what keeps me going as a creator
1: really, or as a writer? I or, think it's a number of things. I mean, to me, writing a lot of the time is like a puzzle. I mean, I don't think I so much write in terms of starting off, you know, and flowing. The text out of my mind, as it were, Mm. and I more sort of start off with a bunch of bullet points. I'd like to think about structuring arguments. Which bits of a puzzle have to have to come in in the right order to make this story make sense? Where are the bits I'm missing? And particularly in a really complicated subject like this, where you have to understand a bit of the technology, a bit of the society, a bit of the use, you know, and how all these things come together. So I'm very much, I guess, a sort of structuralist approach. Okay. In many ways, Um, I think also, I mean, homing in on the people. I mean, there are some sort of fascinating characters involved in the history of most technological subjects. And I think the chance to actually sort of speak to some of those people in the course of writing this book has been absolutely fantastic. Mm. You know I mean, It gives you a real sort of personal connection to history, I think, which is something I really feel quite passionate about. And then how do I sort of translate that into a sort of historical story, as it were? You know, where do these people fit into my wider story? It comes back to that puzzle again, really.
0: What I love, there was one aspect that I found fascinating in the early 80s, 81, 82, 83. There was a, maybe even, no, those three years, I think. There was a period where they were generally making it up as they went along, The, the stuff in the video game publishing industry. They just didn't know what they were doing um, <laughs> for computers, not for video consoles because that was a different beast entirely. Mm-hmm. That was a toy as far as I was concerned. So that was that, was that model. Mm-hmm. But doesn't apply now, of course, but that's a discussion for another time. But then they were... But I love the point where the brake suddenly hit or the, 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 the train went off the tracks or went on the tracks, depending on your point of view. Mm-hmm. They said yeah, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> this is not sustainable. This is how you're supposed to do things. And the inevitable... It's that moment when it suddenly
1: becomes a business. It became I mean, a business.
0: And the people who understood that and realised that won uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: for a period. And then it, 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 it the cycle began it began again. Um, especially when the, the, the Amiga rose and fell very quickly in the face of the Amiga, the SNES and the, and the Mega Drive, etc. Et but again... These are all wonderful stories for another another time, mm. but it's it's definitely psychical to a point. But the history repeated itself kind of. You, as an historian, you know you probably may balk at that phrase "history repeating itself." It does, but only to a point. It's it, it's it's like a, a a distorted mirror of what has happened before. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like there was the rise and fall of the 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 sixteen bit era and how. It got swamped with really quite awful software, which eventually led to its implosion. And then, on the on, then it turned around when the PC rose, and all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. you know, we had the PlayStation arrive and that sort of thing. Is it cyclical? Yeah, totally. Totally,
1: Um, and it's interesting. I guess you know, looking at a lot of the news stories you see today about you know this coming information technology revolution all over again, how incredibly cyclical that is. I think is fascinating as well. I mean, I hear stories in the day in the news today that could have come straight out of the late nineteen seventies all the time. Yeah, Um,
0: yeah. Everyone's well. I think the current one we don't do current news in the show, but. Oh, look, they're revamping the PlayStation 4. No, please don't do that. No, what? What? Oh, you know, it's just, what are you doing? And it's like, haven't you learned? Don't you remember the 32X? And all this ranting about this stuff. I'm like, yeah, but hey, VR. Yeah, do you remember VR? Never mind. Never mind. So, out of all the people and the things you saw and looking at the history of the, of, of video, of uh, computer development, I should say, um, I was about to say something else, but, who do you, do you most admire, alive or dead? Um, do you think that like, yep, they were doing some amazing things, and uh, it's a shame, or it maybe it's sort a of pilloried to, to or, you know, to, to say this, excellent stuff. Who do you, who did you most admire, or what group of
1: people do you most admire? Hmm, I think I probably most admire the people you never get to hear about. Okay. I mean. You know, we sort of look at the history of science and technology as being about big inventive figures, but really it's a massive teamwork activity. Right. I mean, the names behind things you use every day, you know, we know a handful of sort of big names, but, I mean, who are all the other people who are involved?
0: Yeah, I mean, just like the story in the book about how the BBC was made in a week. How about them? Mm. That army of people who worked 24 hours a day for seven days to making computer from nothing. Actually Nothing um what about them you know and and they brought about in in a an in indirect way the same chip that runs my iphone
1: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, a fantastic sort of story of innovation uh, the whole thing absolutely extraordinary yeah. but again you know how, how many people could actually name steve Herber or sophie wilson in this case for instance yeah. not that many oh. so actually sort of meeting people who are responsible for things that we take so much for granted have become such a large part of our daily lives yet people couldn't actually name them i mean that has been really one of the privileges of the job for me i mean the whole way through and particularly people who who don't necessarily think they have anything interesting to tell you when you first speak to them but actually they've got so many interesting insights and give you often a sort of A sort of nitty gritty perspective on the development of technology that, you know, people higher up in a company might not be able to do in quite the same way. So, so to me, it's always the people who you don't know about who I think are the figures I'm most interested in.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, you're right. It's all about people, really. These are machines, but one of the drivers behind the show is to get a face in front of the code of the games that people like to play. And here we are with an author a face and a voice to talk about what they've created and link the the, the 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 reader to the author and to give us some sort of maybe not two way feedback but at least some feedback to say, look, I've made this thing. This is what I've done, this is why I made it and this this is the the subtext that I'd like to say in this text but I can't because there's only so many pages one could fit in a book. <laughs> um So hmm. next question normally I ask the question developers what are you playing right now but it might not be appropriate for your good self unless you are (laughs) playing anything right now it's just a little bit of fun because I like to to think that the game developers and people who write about games have a, a passion
1: for them in the first place are you playing anything right now? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I'm always a few steps behind technology. You know, it's not just the 1980s computing. So at the moment, I am sort of messing around with 3D monster maze on my tablet on an emulator, which is you know this game oh. on the ZX81 where you have to dodge a dinosaur, and I'm also playing Fallout New Vegas, which is about six years old by this point, and I finally got round to playing it. Yep. Um, and seems to have sunk a couple of hundred hours into it more or less by accident
0: that's my uh, in, it's in my pile of shame so I need to fix that people tell me it's the best Fallout game
1: it's better than Fallout 4 apparently is it? Oh, okay. I haven't tried Fallout 4 yet I'll yeah. probably get there in about 6 years time <laughs> um, no
0: I've got a t-shirt with um, 3D Monster Maze on it that's got the the big you know T-Rex coming up and then underneath it it's got a basic sort of it's got um, 10 run 20, 20 go to 10
1: yeah. i got that <laughs> I, did, did you bite buy,
0: buy off a guy on Facebook? I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's awesome! I need to have that now. <laughs> so, because I I played Feeding Monster Maze when it came out, I, I blew my tiny little twelve year old mind. Um, even, you know, I, I managed to. Pl- I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't so much terrified as amazed at how fast it went. Um, I don't know. I just remember playing that on my eighty one, thinking. How, how did they do this? It's just the mm. fastest game ever. Because every other game I was playing was you know, pretty sluggish. Um, but that particular one, I remember playing that. And it loaded quite well as well, which is always a bonus. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those days. So yeah, well, back in the day, there's
1: something quite sinister about it as well, which I always found quite appealing. You know, I mean, the, the, the I idea found... of going to this big top with this yes. guy with a hat, yeah, you know, sort of inviting you in to see his dinosaur that you then have to escape from. It's of like this circus of horrors rendered in sort of two colours, which uh, is extraordinary, yeah. which
0: never ends.
1: By the way, I mean, this keeps on going. True. Oh, I, I've got to the end of it.
0: Oh, right.
1: I've escaped 3D monster maze. I've done it once. Just once. And it goes around and you have to play the game again. But there is a way out. There is an exit. And I actually have a screenshot somewhere of, of that picture. Um, I've never found it since. After sinking several hours, not as many hours as Fallout
0: in so, Vegas, I, I certainly it, several
1: hours. I thought it would re- refresh itself. I mean, you,
0: you get out of the exit and you got another one then another one. I mean, there's a maze yeah, after maze after, after but maze. But there is an exit, which I always thought oh. was, you know, something. Oh okay Interesting But he's a clown isn't he So that's always scary Clowns are way hmm. more scary than the T-Rexes It's got to be said But anyway That's the end of the first half We're now going to move on to the second half of the show Where we talk in depth About this wonderful book that is Electronic Dreams
1: should have a nice, neat answer all sort of composed for this sort of occasion by now, but but it's you me now, about six weeks. Mm-hmm. Electronic Dreams is really a history of how 1980s Britain came to love the computer. It's very much a history of the computer in that sort of uniquely British context of the 1980s. So, how computers go from big, scientific, scary machines, electronic brains, or HAL, for instance, to being a domestic technology. So it's about initially that shift from computers as big and scary to being everyday. It's about how 1980s British society then sort of picks up the computer in all sorts of interesting ways, whether it's Tory politicians who look upon it as this economic salvation, you know, bringing the computer age to Britain, whether it's games programmers who sort of see the potential of this thing, not as an educational technology, but as an entertainment platform, and all those other sort of groups in you know British society more generally, who sort of take up this technology and use it. And subtly change it in different ways. So it's about sort of first contact between, you know, Britain and the home computer really. And it's very much about the home computer. It is that first few years of the 1980s. You know, that very weird time when suddenly computers enter the home. And about, I guess, the difference that makes over a very short period of time where the computer is completely mysterious to being every day and suddenly huge. You know, computers boomed at the start of 1980s in Britain. I mean, by 1983, the country has more computers than anywhere else in the world per head. That's incredible. And then suddenly it's gone. Yeah. You know, it's gone. This industry has sort of fallen over in about 1984 to 1986. And suddenly, I guess, computing gets boring at that point. Um, so there. I guess that's, that's a rough sort of summary of it. Hmm. And I noticed... Did you get something different yourself on reading it? It's a...
0: Yeah, there was There's something that struck me about the book when I was reading it. And one of the things, as I was working my way through and, and, you know, digesting it all, I noticed an extraordinary in-depth look at the very early history of what I call the prehistory of the 8-bit computer era, where people were building kits. Um, the com- home computing was not really ba- It was extremely embryonic to the point where you had these computer clubs made up of hundreds of people, uh, if that, um, building kits from stuff they'd ordered from the colonies of uh, the United States uh, or other parts <laughs> of the world. Try to, you know, get in all these these, uh, which, and these computers were barely recognizable from what we understood. Like, the Altair T mm. didn't have a screen.
1: It's All it a box has, with lights and switches. It flashes. It's brilliant.
0: Yeah, it's you know to program it you had to switch it on and off and on and off and on. and it's something I've said on this show many occasions that ultimately computers are just a series of switches. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Even today, but especially today, they are still just series of switches. That are layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, upon layer of switches which makes the vast complex things they are now. But they still are. Just an old hair. Just way more complex and way more user-friendly. But that's ultimately all they are. And and that's what, you know, when computer games and and developers are working on this stuff, they're just moving switches from one to zero. (laughs) Is it on? No. Okay. well, that should be off. Should it? Yeah okay
1: Uh, interestingly enough if you go back to the world's very first restored program electronic computer 1948 manchester baby the programming interface is a row of switches (laughs) exactly the same as the Altair, almost somewhat more massive and more crude but um it's just a row of switches just a row of switches so i've got to ask
0: why why did you go so in depth to that why, why did you do that? Well, I think I know the answer. It's a rhetorical question, in my opinion. I think I know the answer to it, but I wanted to hear from you. Um, why, do you why did you go so so deep into that, that rabbit hole of that from 1940s to the 70s, those 30 years, 30 extraordinary years, but why did you do that?
1: I did that really because I was thinking particularly of readers today. You know, we accept, you know, a world where computers are all around us as being completely and utterly normal. And that makes it quite hard writing about the introduction of a technology when people are completely and utterly used to it. I very much sort of trying to write about those early years of computing to try and take people back to a world where computers weren't everyday where they were weird and scary and just to sort of try and put them in a better a better frame to sort of understand why 1980s computing actually happened in the way that it did yeah um, so it's very much thinking about the reader and as well i guess you know, like, most of the sort of histories you read about personal computing are all about the American story. You know, it's about how a bunch of hippies and hobbyists out in California cobbled together their machines and built massive companies out of it. I was quite interested in sort of looking at what was happening a little bit in Britain in the same sort of time frame. So I wanted to go back and recreate a little bit of 1980, sorry, 1970s British hobbyist computing. To actually point out that this isn 't just an American story you know there are un- interesting things happening probably all over the world you know Britain has its own hobbyist seeking its own hobbyist computing and it arises here in a, in a similar sort of way to the states but but with differences yes so why did why did you think I did it <laughs>
0: um, to give it a sense of um, it's a framing a sense of perspective a sense of well, this is where it started. This is the kernel of the idea. This is why, for three years, the in 1980s, things were a bit crazy, because it started like that. So that's because of that environment, because of that culture, because it, mm. it, that's how it sprang. But I can't just dive straight into 1981 and go, this computer came out, it did, everyone thought th- it was awesome. Really? Yeah, what happened before it? Oh, not much. Anyway, and it's just
1: okay, like, where is just... it coming? Yeah, there's definitely an element of that as well. I mean, you know, in the earlier drafts of the book, I was having real problems trying to decide where to start this story. You know, I, I think I probably started off with Babbage in one draft and then sort of threw that away and eventually decided in on 1948. You know, it, with, with the first programmable computer. Yes, or still program computer, anyway.
0: And they did not uh, realise that how important it was. They went, oh, let's have a spot of lunch. Yeah, <laughs> oh, okay. fine then. Do you want us to see what you've done? No. <laughs> anyway, it's just a thing. But go away, strange man. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's. A, I just love the, the I, I personally felt it was a fantastic foundation from which to build from, because you are reaching a point. But what was wonderful about the book is it it doesn't really give you as a hint as to what that point would be until close to the end. Um, you did kind of lead everyone, lead me on, like where is he going with this? Not in a negative <laughs> sense, but it's just like why is he? Why is this important? Why is he talking about? And there was there is there is an element of um, emphasis and reemphasis and then reemphasis of certain points to say, look, this company did this, this company did this, which is almost exactly the same as that company, although they did it slightly differently, but ultimately it's the same thing. And it was it's it's quite interesting that everyone was learning. From each other. So, but my mm. next, the next question. Maybe they weren't learning from some were, some were. Amsterdam certainly did. Um, mm. But um, mm. the eight bit computer era was terribly short lived, yet has had a lasting effect on our culture. What do you think was its biggest impact from thirty years ago? What, what, what has been what's been the ripple that we still feel today?
1: Uh, I, th- I don't think the 8-bit computer era is over, is one answer. I mean, which I think, again, you know, it is part of it. It, it. We are so nostalgic for these products, these machines that sort of entered our lives at a fairly I mean, formative stages, really, in our lives in many cases. I know I sometimes think of the 8-bit computer as being you know, the toy soldier of our generation or the Meccano, the thing that we grow up with. Mm. So I think in one way it's left us all with a lot of very personal connections to the machine, a lot of very fond nostalgia. But I think more than anything else, it made us a computer literate society. Right. You know, it's the first time you are able to actually, unless you're a particular kind of geek who likes soldering, it's the first time you're able to own your computer yourself, to actually take it home, to play around with it, to realize it's not a big, scary electronic brain to start doing things with it. So I think that starts a a process which is still with us today. You know, I mean, that is the computerization of life in general. It really sort of starts with the 8-bit era. Mm. Um, Before that point, it's tiny, I guess, the impact of the computer really, if you really want to look at it. After that point, there's some exponential growth. And most of it goes back to that initial era. You know, I mean, looking around for people to interview about this book when I was sort of writing it, The number of them who are still sort of working in tech companies now, Mm. you know, it is quite extraordinary. You kind of get this impression of the 8-bit computer sort of creating the sort of cadre from which the high tech industry and computing very much sort of developed in Britain in all sorts of new ways. Um, So I think it's given us a lot of things and I don't think it's over yet. Yeah, I think I said a ripple. It's more like a wave, isn't it?
0: Uh, or maybe even worse than that, because it, it it was a it was quite an explosion, and I remember being a teenager in the middle of it, which is kind of scary. on thinking about it, and you know, my personally, my siblings were quite indifferent to it all, uh, and quite confused as to why I was so enthralled by this thing. <coughs> but it, it kind of focuses on, for me, one of the reasons why. I mean, I remember seeing them, the ZX81 for the very first time and playing a game on it um, for the very first time. It was this weird. Sort of Star Commander sort of ripoff called Star Trail and an extraordinary game where you're flying through space and blowing aliens up and stuff. And what I really loved about it was that here I am manipulating something on a television screen which normally I would have to sit at at and look at and drink in passively and just take in whatever it's served up and like it or lump it. That's the thing that enthralled me was the fact that here's a television. And this thing that interacts with the TV screen that makes me want to put things that I could put up onto
1: it, not what... It's interesting you you should say that, because you're not the only person who points that out. I think it was probably a very common reaction at the time to, you know... 1980s computing. The, 1980s, the ZX81, for instance, enters a world where Britain has three TV channels and hardly anyone owns a video recorder. Yeah. something you can plug into the telly and make something happen, anything happen. Anything. I, I think is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. It's that weird first dawn, really, of, of I guess our interactive relationship with computing in the home. You know, which I think will basically be lost for all the generations to follow. You know, mm. I mean, people growing up with this sort of stuff accept it as all perfectly normal yeah i think they're probably missing out on something you you know that sense of wonder when you plug it in and it does something
0: yeah the mere thought of i mean there's there's a relation to this like who watched broadcast television you know they I, i know people do but for my personal generation and my peers it's like what you watch it when it's broadcast why you just watch it when it when you feel like it you know it's just it's it's retro (laughs) yeah it's just like why are you watching broadcast who watches live television anymore and it's like yeah no one does that well at least not in my peer group you know it's just like no no one does that watch it when your terms when you want to watch it not one you know and it's just and it's a similar thing you know you just take it for granted right or wrongly you just take it for granted it's just like oh yes every every screen is interactive right isn't it when you see a screen and this is back in the day when it's the, the television screen you normally have one in the entire home.
1: No remote control.
0: No remote control either. And there's only three channels. I remember that. But now it's, it's at least half a dozen screens alone in a home for a variety of reasons. Some are mm. on the fridge. You know, it's, just, it's, just, it's everywhere. You know, you're, you're, you're watching stuff. You're watching YouTube like, stuff on, the, on, you know, watching all these old TV shows and, you know, micro live and stuff on YouTube. Like, hang on. How did this happen? It's just, it's if you went back in time with a phone and with YouTube and showed someone that again, they were burning as a witch, rightly so. Because yeah. This is inter- It's it's just extraordinary times we live in, and I never take it for
1: granted. It's it's wrong to. Do you know what I always think people take most for granted is GPS. You know, I've got a device in my pocket that can tell me where I am from space. Yes, that's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean- I- yeah, And um, you accept it as normal and every day. Yeah? And that's the process, I think, that starts with the home computer. You know, It makes technology boring for us all in some ways, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I was in Boston recently, and I had to get a train from there to another place. I was going to a friend's. And this is Boston, the new one, not, not the old one. And uh, I was there with my phone, and he went, oh, you're in Boston, are you? Okay, here's the new map for Boston. Okay, I need to get to the station. All right. I never did. I just walked, and it told me exactly where to go because it told because you knew where I was. and Like, and you just do it, and you just like, oh, that was good. And then you sit. Then I sat down and played Firewatch while I was on the train for three hours. And it's like, what? What? It's uh, yeah. It's just really. It's uh, we live in extraordinary times. But speaking of extraordinary things, actually, no, it's not extraordinary. But I would like to ask you and. This is always something I like to ask authors about books, especially factual books like this one. What you've liked to have covered in the book but had to remove due to space, stroke, time?
1: There are two answers to that question. Okay, I'd have liked to like a lot more about games. Um, I think I managed to devote about fifteen hundred words to games, and okay. early on, I, I was talking to a games. Author who I was interviewing, and I would say, well, you know, I was expecting I I'll just try and cram all of nineteen eighties home computer games into about ten thousand words. That sounds fine. And he sort of looked at me, and I thought, I'm not going to do this, am I? Um, and yeah, there are so many things that have occurred to me since I should have written about it in the games chapter, or chapter and a half, really. I mean, it grew. And the other thing I kind of regret not having written more about was what's happened since, to some extent. Mm. Um, I guess I interviewed a few extra people towards the end, sort of looking back on 1980s home computing. The retro computing movement, I think, is the thing I wish I had covered more at the end of the book. I've only really sort of scratched the surface of what's there because it's a massive movement. I mean, I'm absolutely amazed at some of the things I have discovered, things that people are still doing with 1980s home computers today. I, know, I knew there were a few people out there writing games. They were the odd archive. The scope and expanse of the sort of movement that has developed from 1980s home computing and is still vibrant today is absolutely extraordinary. So I wish I'd written a more, bit more about that. Yeah,
0: um, um, speaking for myself, I do own quite a sizable collection that all works, amazingly, although my MSX did die. And I had to replace the IC chip inside it, which you talk about in the book. Like, these machines are dying. You're right. They are all dying. Uh, and I did treat it well. It just They just die. There's like bits. Just like, I shouldn't. They were designed to last for five years, if that. Not, not 30 not
1: think they even thought about them
0: lasting for, no, for, for that long. <laughs> that's what I'm they saying. They want to, or whatever uh, it is. I tell you a story, and I mean, this shows about me, but I think it, you might sort of. Like, over, we're recording this show soon after Easter, so Easter Sunday for me is my sort of dead day, I don't do much. And I thought, oh, no. I know, was, I, was, I was playing uh, Overwatch, and uh, after I played that, some, I glanced in the corner of my eye, I saw my Vic 20. Bear with me on this, which is, again, fully functioning. I went, you know, I remember someone telling me that, what Vic 20, that, yeah, Jetpack's quite good on that. <laughs> but I, I don't have it on, but I can download it. So what I did was I got my Vic 20. Set it up next to my main computer, and then I downloaded um, the the prog the PRG version of, of of Jetpack, converted that into a WAV file, <laughs> and then using a little adapter that I've got for Commodore computers, basically you plug it in the back. And rather than the data set, you can actually put an audio jack into the back of it, and I played mm-hmm. the WAV into the VIC twenty, which then loaded <laughs> Jetpack. And then I proceeded to play jetpack, um, you know, and it's just the thing I could do. And it's just like, and then I put some pictures up on Facebook, and people went crazy. Like, what are you doing? So I'm playing jetpack on my, on my Vic Twenty, and that's that's why I think the retro scene exists because you can do things like that. You know, mm. this vast, vast archive of of video games that exist um, that you can grab and put on the hardware of the time is quite extraordinary. and um, So that's one of the things I've, I've done.
1: I think the authenticity of the hardware yeah. at the time is important there as it's, well. It's, you know, I, mean, I, I played 3D Monster Maze on a tablet, and it's nowhere near as much fun as actually on a ZX81. It, you know, I guess the keyboard's on the tablet, and the ZX81 is both basically flat pieces of plastic. Yes. But you do, there's a sort of tactility to it. I, you don't really get the full experience from mm-hmm. emulators at all.
0: But you're right, the retro scene is an extraordinary one. Um, I, got, I glommed onto it about ten years ago, and then I stopped because my collection reached a, a point where I just stopped. I went, OK, I'm not doing this anymore, I've got enough, I've got the space, it's fine, leave it as it is. And it turns out it's a wise decision, because now the price of things are triple... Just gone r- through the roof.
1: Absolutely, I mean, yeah. Experience.
0: Some of the stuff I've got is worth a lot of money, and I'm like, hmm, should I? should I... No. Uh, <laughs> but. Probably um, only go
1: up. They're not making them anymore.
0: No, exactly. They're only going to go up, so I'm fine. And they'll work. I've got this work. I even have a plus four. No, I don't know why either. Anyway. I've got um, a plus four, and it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they look, great colour palette. But, uh, so, my last question to you, and this relates to the video game creation stuff that you, again, you might want to talk about more. So, I'm going to give you a chance to do that now. At least I hope. Do you think. The lowering of the barrier of entry of video game development has been a product of the arrival of the Raspberry Pi. Hmm. At least in part.
1: I don't think we're quite at the point yet where we will be able to assess the impact of the Raspberry Pi. Um, I think it's still quite new, Mm -hmm. and it's clearly doing something, but I think it may be another year or two before we actually sort of see, see the fruits of this. I think, you know, the mobile phone has probably played a huge part in a lowering of barriers to entry. You know, you think about something like Android Play Store, it essentially allows pretty much anybody to join the marketplace again in a way that hasn't been the case since the early 1980s. Mm. The barriers aren't really there anymore. So I think the Raspberry Pi is important in taking down the technical barriers, but the games market, you know, it's not just about the technical barriers. There are old commercial ones as well. Um, I don't know does Raspberry Pi have an equivalent of the Play Store yet, or, or uh,
0: it's too open-ended, too free-form, not in a bad way, but that's basically where where it stands. And uh, for me to say, oh yeah, it's it's all. <laughs> I just wanted to, because you wrote in such length, such length about the uh, the machine. I thought we might want to say that they might have some influence on how game development has become much more. The
1: commonplace. Mm-hmm. <coughs> it's just a thought. I do mean in terms of, sort of indie development. Right,
0: no? <laughs> yes, I mean, if you look at, for example, Microsoft has announced today that the people can now make games for the Xbox One with high cost. Um yeah. <laughs> it's quite a quite a strange thing. So, it's it's that sense of, you know, um, the tools that are available now are much are much more because of the vast libraries that are available, you don't need to you know no assembly to make video games anymore to a point. Um, I just wondered if Raspberry Pi maybe had an influence or part of that, 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 that whole culture of like, you know what, want to make games? Go ahead. <laughs> you know, there are people who now make games not for, for profit or money because because they can. And that's great.
1: You know. I actually don't know quite enough about the sort of Raspberry Pi indie game scene to really give this a decent answer, Sorry.
0: No, it's okay. I just thought more. I think it's more on the lines of it's this homebrew, not homebrew, but it's like this uncontrolled bit of hardware, it's the size of size of your hand that you can make anything with. Without say anything computing wise, you're given very very basic tools and go you know, off you go do what you like with it. We're not going to mm. we're not going to control you. We're not going to tell you you can do this that and the other. Do what you like without you know
1: making it explode, of course.
0: And that's that's great. I guess I would sort of hope
1: that the Raspberry Pi takes us in a direction uh-huh. that is different to the mainstream games industry. You know, simply because anybody can do it. Look how samey most sort of big games are these days. You know, that's basically a sort of function of the fact the barriers to entry are so high, the risks of going wrong are so high. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of time, you know, we'll probably see the Raspberry Pi develop its own quite different sort of game scene, simply because the barriers are a lot lower. Right. Um what will be the big hits from that? I don't know. I don't even know what they'll look like. You know, I mean, maybe it'll be a physical product on a shelf. I don't think so. No. I think it's be no. something different, but we don't know quite know what yet.
0: Yeah, but they keep on releasing new ones, they keep on iterating, it keeps on getting better and better. And the fact that it's powered by an arm chip is not there's no it's not ironic at all. It's like, yeah, that <coughs> makes perfect
1: sense. There's a little bit of BBC Micro in all of them. Yeah.
0: Yes, which I never owned as a kid, and I only knew one um, person in my school that had one because I was in I I I was brought up in in East London. So, um, you mentioned like the the, the Doomsday or Domesday, um project it was fast. I remember that when they were going around the country doing, like like, they're insane. Why would they? How could they use laser to to do all this stuff? It was way way ahead of its time. Way it was like. Could you do this in 10 years now? Not now. Don't. don't never mind. You know, they, they, they waited just 10 years maybe. It will be five. Like, don't do it now. Um, but, um, yeah, but, and you said all the spectrums were, were everywhere. ILA. I don't remember because we had a BBC computer at my school. But, uh, yes, I remember a friend. He had a computer, a BBC. There was really a Model A, but his, his father uh, was an electronics sort of engineer, it's set about. <laughs> if you imagine what happened to it. Um, I, it, it, was, it ended up...
1: smell now a burning solder.
0: <laughs> lots of burning solder, but there was a big... It, it upgraded to a model B by brute force and ignorance. And then it went beyond to something, some weird monster, where it had this big, fat black, black heat sink in the middle of it. It, <laughs> was, it, had a, it had a bolt going through it, and this whole thing... The case had been removed and the keyboard had been put into this wooden chassis and it was like... It was a monster. Barely recognisable of BBC, but it, it was one because I saw the keyboard and it had all the relevant keys. But it, and I remember this thing got so hot that the bolt got white hot. It was just, yeah, it was just, but I remember playing Elite on that and being and being taken away into other parts of the universe, thanks to Mr. Braben and Mr. Bell. But yeah... Um, for me, it was all about, you know, the kids at school, it was all C64 and Spectrums and stuff and that big big tussle and that big fight. And I think what you say mm. in there about I mean, John Ripman, I think he says um, how all the Spectrum games were different because they had to be because there was no set hardware. It was, mm-hmm. it was, you were trying to do things it was, wasn't designed to do, whereas the Commodore 64 was designed from the outset to make games in a certain way, so they all looked the same. which i thought was a bit you know really
1: really there's there's some truth in that i mean i I was all growing up you know my favorite games a lot of them were the ocean platformers you know the ones based on movies Yeah. yeah it was only after playing about 10 of them you realized they're all sort of more or less the same sort of game you know you know yeah, you could just sort of, you know, whether it's Robocop or Platoon or The Untouchables, uh, there are so many sort of column elements there. They do look very similar, and the large function of that is the hardware.
0: Yeah, uh, um, yeah. For me, um, uh, those games, I was much more one of those like, oh, I loved Lords of Midnight and I loved um, Shadowfire and this weird stuff. Most people weren't playing, I think, uh, but I didn't. I wasn't really into the platformers that much. I mean, I was terrible. At I liked Manic Miner, but I was terrible at it. And then when the others yeah. came out, I was like, "Yeah, it's not for me."
1: So, <laughs> how many of those games did you actually complete?
0: Um, I've finished Lords of Midnight multiple times in various different ways. Mm. Shadowfire, again, I, I finished in, in various different ways uh, because you could because you only had an hour. There's a timer on the things an hour and a half. She so had to finish an hour and a half because otherwise you'd lose. Uh, but It's a beautiful game. I would highly recommend you read up about it because it was quite important. It was, it was driven but entirely by icons uh, mm. and you had to have the manual with you in order to understand what the icons meant because um, <laughs> it didn't describe what the there was no like you know um, little text that hovered over when you put your your, your pointer over it Cause it, did, it did have a pointer you had a little pointer like a you had no mouse though you had to use the keyboard or the joystick mm. to do it and it was just like oh you you It was entirely, entirely iconography. There was no, there's very little, little to no text explaining what was going on. The only way you knew what was going on is by if you read the manual, back cover to cover, and then cross-reference what was going on on the screen with the manual. Amazing! Um, And I loved it. I loved it. I just loved that whole expansion because the the, the designers realised that the computer had limitations but paper mm. didn't. Paper didn't have any limitations. So let's just splurge all the information on <laughs> yeah. paper, and that's what they did. So those back in those days, you had to read the manual. You had to, otherwise you have no clue what's going on.
1: And it's quite interesting. Remember that's been part of the fun, though. You know, I mean, it was. Sort of your parents yeah. taking you home, reading the instructions for the game in the car that you just spent your pocket money on. Yeah, uh, you don't I get that with Steam.
0: No, I mean, I recently I was on a, a another podcast called Retro Asylum where we actually compared various games uh, of the, of, the um, of three the three main systems: the Amstrad, the Spectrum, and the C64. And we just basically took the ports and compared the three ports against each other and voted which is the best one. And one of the games was Shadowfire. So I played this Shadowfire game, and again, after thirty years after playing it, I loved it. It was just, you know I got back into it, but the other people played it. He said, I don't know what's going on. I couldn't get into it. I don't know what's going on. Like, was, you had to, had to read the manual. I don't want to do that. Like, no, you really had to read the manual. And he didn't <laughs> do it. So it's it's fascinating looking to – and, again, there there's a generation thing. I was slightly older than the other hosts, so they really couldn't – they didn't recognize the game. Mm. And it's like, oh, what's this? And so for me, that was the game. It wasn't really a Twitch game. I was still, still really not that much of one. Uh, to this day, even though, I, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm okay with it, but I'm just not, not that really good. So, let's sign off then, because we could ramble on and on. So, the game is out on, sorry, the book, sorry, the book is book. out, the book is out, uh, on Amazon, and any other uh, reputable bookstores, and not so reputable ones maybe. Um it's, it's fantastic, fantastic book, it's got some really wonderful pictures, some very rare pictures, uh, of, uh, as we were talking about before we recorded the show, on about micronets, which is a precursor, kind of ish, to the internet, although it didn't have any cats in it or porn. <laughs> um, at <laughs> the time, no. <laughs> yeah, no, they did. Well, they, they did talk. You did sort of skirt that a little bit in the in the book, which is I'm not going to spoil it. It's fantastic stuff, but highly, highly recommended. It, I uh, recommend it. I should say, um, I devoured it. I just couldn't stop reading it whatever chance I had. I was pulling the book out as opposed to playing Flappy Bird or some other horrible iPhone game, which is fantastic. So thank you for that, Tom.
1: And thank you for being on the show. No, thank you. I'm really glad you've enjoyed it. This has been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me.
0: And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. Just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter, at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes and uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer who listened to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at